This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Today, I wanna to talk about the Omicron variant. So on Friday, day after Thanksgiving, I was at a friend's place having leftovers and I pulled out my phone at the dinner table, which is something you should never do. And Twitter is on fire with news of a new variant first detected and announced out of South Africa called the Omicron variant. So first I have to learn how to say the word Omicron, and then I get completely sucked into the vortex of doom scrolling through my phone for the next half hour. And what immediately struck me reading all these headlines about a Frankenstein variant, a polymutant variant, was the gap between data and meaning. Like within hours of this thing becoming public, scientists could tell you with exquisite detail exactly what the virus looked like exactly how it had evolved or mutated from the OG coronavirus, the original sucker. So you're just reading all this stuff, feeling overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed with new information. And I kept scrolling to the part where they said, and what does this mean for you, for the vaccines, for Christmas travel? And the answer on every count was, we have no idea. <laughs> Come back in two weeks. Like facts and factoids everywhere not a drop of meaning. So in the next few days, I think a lot of people will be in exactly that state. They will be scrolling through their phones, looking at data and not finding meaning. And so I think it's important to be clear about the only four questions that matter when it comes to this variant. Number one, is it more infectious? Number two, does it cause more severe illness? Number three, do the vaccines that we have still work against this mutant? And number four, when will we know the answer to questions one through three? And since there's really only one guy I trust more than everybody else to answer those questions, I called him. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English.
Dr. Peter Hotez is the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor University. He is the co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. He is one of the rare TV figures who appears regularly on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News. He has been throughout this pandemic one of my top go-to sources for everything about the vaccines, the variants, everything else pandemic related. So, Dr. Hotez, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for uh, having me and good to see you and talk with you. Good to see you too. So, when I first read the stories about Omicron, scientists were calling it a Frankenstein monster. And I am not asking you to endorse that particular description, but I was hoping we could start by having you explain what scientists saw with this mutation that caused such alarm. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't call it a Frankenstein monster, but there are some concerning elements to it. I think one was the steep acceleration in cases that were noted in the two urban areas of South Africa, Pretoria and Johannesburg, that were in the same province. And that caused people to say, hmm, what's going on here? And with it, you know, the, the South African virology community is very strong, um, in part because it, it, it really accelerated during the AIDS era, and they have a lot of capacity. So molecular virology is really strong in South Africa, and they were doing a very good job doing genomic sequencing, and they were sequencing a number of the virus isolates, and they saw two concerning trends. One was that the variant, um, in terms of transmissibility, had um, some mutations around what's called the 681 position, which is known as the furin cleavage site um, that we've seen with alpha and delta are associated with high transmissibility. And then the second, the one that more people know about, is the uh, lots of mutations in the spike protein, including the receptor binding domain of the spike protein that binds to the ACE2 receptor. So um, that gave people pause for concern that it was kind of the worst of both worlds. One, you had an agent that could be transmissible like alpha or delta, number one, and number two, lots of mutations that potentially could make it partially resistant to uh, the immune responses to vaccines. And, and I think that was the reason why the World Health Organization sounded the alarm, in, in part, I think, because you know some of the international bodies have been slow in the past, and people we wanted to give a full on they wanted to give a full on um, signal that this was a, a variant of of concern. To synthesize a little bit of what you just said, the, the virus hooks into our cells primarily with the spike protein. I think of it a little bit like burrs or, a, or spores that hook into a sweater. They have these little spikes that come out of them and they hook into the cloth of our sweater and that's how they stick. And that's sort of how the virus sticks to our cells and, and invades our bodies. And what you're saying is that- Close enough, close enough. Close <laughs> enough, <laughs> okay. Uh, close enough for plain English, I guess. And, and you're saying that there are mutations in that spike protein, a large and, and potentially concerning number of mutations. Um, why are the number of mutations concerning to scientists? Well, because in the past, when we've seen some key mutations in that part of the spike protein known as the receptor binding domain, and we've seen it at least twice before, we've seen it with the beta variant that ironically came out of South Africa last year, it was also known as the B1351, or the Lambda variant that came out of South Africa, we've seen those, um, we've seen how the antibodies to the vaccines 
are no longer as effective at neutralizing the virus and preventing the virus from binding to the receptors, preventing the burrs from, from binding. And now this one is not only has some of those same mutations as beta and lambda, but has considerably more mutations. So the, the, the scary situation is whether or not the antibodies to the original vaccines will be able to neutralize the Omicron variant spike protein changes at all. And, and I think it will. I think there will be diminished binding. But if you, my, my hope is that individuals who've got really high levels of virus neutralizing antibody because they got three doses of the mRNA vaccine or because they've been infected and recovered and they got vaccinated, I'm hoping that there'll be enough um, crossover or what I think Tony Fauci said today, spillover of those vaccines to still neutralize the Omicron variant adequately. And, and that we'll know over the next week or two, because our lab is doing those studies with our vaccine, our recombinant protein vaccine, to see if it'll the antibodies will spill over and, and neutralize Omicron. And I'm certain Pfizer and Moderna and J&J and AstraZeneca, we're all doing the same experiments. Right. And we're going to get to the timeline in just a second. I just want to make sure that, that I understand exactly what you're saying. So we built these vaccines uh, for the original coronavirus, but the coronavirus the strain mutates. that came out of Wuhan or, or central the strain China. that came out of Wuhan, right? Exactly. Um, and, and so far, that that's been adequate for just about every variant. It's it's cross neutralized the the alpha variant, the delta variant, the really ones of concern, even partial cross neutralized the beta and, and lambda, which never really took off, but concerned a lot of people because there were a lot of mutations in, in the spike protein. So the, the history or precedent would tell us we should still be okay. But given all the extra mutations that are in uh, Omicron, that's the concern that maybe we're going to run out of luck this time. I'm hoping not, but it's, it's, it's never been more of a possibility. Yeah, so I, I have a story in my head and I, about these mutations and what they mean, and I want you to tell me if that story jives with your understanding of the science. So um, the founders of BioNTech, uh, which made what we call the Pfizer vaccine, I spoke to them and they said the mRNA vaccines sort of holds up like a wanted poster of the virus to the immune system. They say, this is what the bad guy looks like. And when you confront the real McCoy, you'll recognize him, stop him before he gets into the town, gets into the salon and causes all this mayhem. But the virus, as you said, produces variants, alpha, beta, gamma, of course, delta. And I think of those variants or those mutations as a little bit like the figure in the wanted poster trying on disguises to get inside. Like I'm anthropomorphizing here. He's not trying to on disguises. It's just uh, mutating because of evolution. Um, but you know, it's, it's, you know, alpha puts on the fake nose and gamma or delta puts on the fake beard. And what worries virologists is that Omicron has way more mutations on that critical spike protein than the other variants we've seen. It's like, it's as if the criminal pictured in the wanted poster went to the costume store and like grabbed every disguise in the center aisle. And now the scientists are like, we don't know if, if he, he's got the fake nose, he's got the, the fake beard, he's got the wig on. We don't know if the, the wanted poster that the mRNA vaccines have shown to our immune system are necessarily going to recognize this mutant the same way they have recognized 
all the previous mutants. To what extent, yeah, uh, Dr. Hotez, have I completely butchered the science? I'll I'll run with you, or you (laughs) could say, you know, before, you know, the... The criminal had had a badly fitting fake mustache and and one of those Groucho Marx glasses with the fake nose and mustache, and now they've now they've gone and gotten plastic surgery. So, uh, so yeah, I think that that's that's fair enough. Um, and whether or not we'll still be able to recognize uh, this the Omicron variant, we'll know pretty soon. You know, hopefully days, a week or a week or so. Uh, the problem is the same. Uh, company that produces all the pseudoviruses um, is getting, you know, getting inundated with requests so everybody can look at it. So it's uh, there's a capacity problem there too. Let's talk about the timeline here. So it seems to me there are three big questions. One, is Omicron more transmissible, more contagious than Delta? Two, does it cause more severe illness than Delta? And three, are the vaccines we're taking effective against it. When will we know the answer to these questions? Is it a matter of days or weeks? All right. So the first thing we're going to need, we're going to try to find out is, is this virus accelerating in other places where it's popping up? I mean, um, we're hearing a lot of concern expressed that now it's in several European countries and Australia and Hong Kong and Canada. It's likely in the United States, but is it going to accelerate there? Um, and that's that's not a guarantee. So, you know, people are wringing their hands, the fact that it's already popped up in so many different places, to which I say, you know, just about every variant that we've ever had has popped up in multiple places at the same time. And that's happened since the beginning, right? When everyone was wringing their hands about the original variant coming out of central China, we had to put in travel restrictions from China. And, and by that time, the virus was already in southern Europe, and that's what ignited the terrible epidemic in New York City. So the fact that it's in multiple places per se doesn't really alarm me. But in the next week or so, we'll start to see if things really accelerate with that with this new variant. So that's the first piece. The second is we'll get a better sense of severity of illness. We're hearing different stories. Some are saying it's only mild illness. Um, Others, uh, I tend to doubt that. We've so far not seen much variation in clinical presentation from variant to variant. It's it's been they're all bad, right? So um, so I doubt we're going to see much difference there. Then the third is we'll get collect information uh, about. Um, whether it has the capacity to actually outcompete Delta. And that's the big question everybody needs to know is because that's the way this has worked. We had the original lineage, and with, despite all these different variants, there was one dominant one that took over, and that was Alpha that arose out of an unvaccinated population in the UK in 2020, swept across the world, and then... Delta came along, and that was even more transmissible and swept across the world and outcompeted Alpha. The question people will want to know is whether Omicron is outcompeting Delta. That's a pretty high bar because Delta is highly transmissible. Um, I'd be surprised if it does, but it's not impossible. And then the last thing we want to know is do the virus neutralizing antibodies uh, recognize this new bandit, right? Does does it have the ability to cross neutralize or spill over to recognize the Omicron variant? And that we'll know over the next week or two. So that's why I, you know, when people ask me about international travel plans, what should we do now? And this, I say, look, we're, you know, if you can hold off 
big decisions for the next couple of weeks, we'll know a lot more. And so just to jump in here, we're going to know more soon. But in the meantime, Christmas is four weeks away. Hanukkah is literally right now. Holiday travel is already underway. If people are concerned, what should they do right now? One, if you've only gotten two doses of the mRNA vaccine and it's more than six months, get that third immunization. That'll give you a 30 to 40-fold rise in your virus-neutralizing antibodies. Second, vaccinate your kids if they're not vaccinated yet. Uh, anyone over the age of five. And third, if you've been infected and recovered, um, we now have studies coming out of Rockefeller University and Yale and elsewhere showing that if you get vaccinated on top of that, it not only will elevate your virus-neutralizing antibodies, but it gives you this phenomenon of what's called epitope broadening to make you more resilient against the variants. So rather than wring your hands, you know, talk to your loved ones and make certain everybody is taking advantage of this very impressive luxury that we have here in the United States, which is a widespread availability of vaccines. Epitope broadening, basically meaning that our immune system recognizes a wide variety of potential COVID mutations. So to go back to the first metaphor, it's like the guy in the wanted poster can't trick us with fake mustaches anymore because we're recognizing him in all of his disguises. Uh, I want to summarize for myself what I take to be your timeline, because again, timeline is so important. Um, we're getting more information about case growth every day, which means we will have a sense of its transmissibility pretty soon. On severe illness, it might take a little bit longer as we wait to hear about hospital reports in places like South Africa. And then on vaccine effectiveness, it could take a week or two. Is that right? Well, at least at least in the test tube, though, the antibody studies against the variants if you have all the reagents, it can move pretty quickly. I mean, all the companies, and we have our antibodies, it's a matter of how quickly they get the pseudovirus into their lab, and they'll get some, at least some early indication within a few days. And that's not the same as vaccine effectiveness studies, but it'll kind of give you an indication of, of, of what this is looking like. So we might get some of that vaccine uh, information soon, soon as well. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write, use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. 
With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. What scares you more right now? Is it the potential risk of Omicron, or is it the potential for another deadly winter surge from Delta? My biggest worry is this next Delta wave's coming, and and we still have too many unvaccinated Americans, and and the numbers are horrific. Since June one, we've lost a hundred and fifty thousand. June June one this year, hundred and fifty thousand unvaccinated Americans who needlessly threw their lives away because they refused to get vaccinated. And and that was the consequence of this Delta wave over the summer across the South into Texas and the Southern states, into Florida. And now it's going to happen again. It's going to happen. Now it's going to start. It's starting up in the upper Midwest, in Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, some extent New Mexico. And this virus, Delta, is going to pick off all the unvaccinated. And now the under-vaccinated, those who are too far out from their second dose and are not getting their third dose. They're also vulnerable. And people are infected and recovered who think they have great immunity. They don't. They have inconsistent uh, immunity. So that's that's my that's overwhelmingly my biggest worry. And um and Omicron, yeah, that's that's a concern too. We're, but we're putting in the infrastructure now to look at it. But right now we're about to get slammed um yet again by another big wave this winter of, with Delta. And so you think that people should get bo- anybody who's available uh, or eligible uh, for the booster shot should get boosted, uh, not only if they're over 65, not only if they're immunocompromised, you would encourage everybody more than six months away from their last shot uh, to get the third shot. Uh, w- why is that the case? And, and, and what's the, uh, the most compelling evidence that you see that boosters really are that valuable? Well, the compelling evidence is based on studies out of Israel showing that there's a substantially, once you get boosted, you not only have a 30 to 40-fold rise in your virus-neutralizing antibodies, but you're 10 times less likely to be hospitalized um, and uh, to get symptomatic illness and to get infection. And I think that's the piece that not a lot of people talk about. You know, there's, you're hearing some of my colleagues saying, well, you only vaccinate to protect against hospitalization. And um, and death, and I'm saying no because you don't want to get COVID. We now know that a significant percentage of people get long COVID symptoms lasting 15 months. And why did I get my third immunization? I got it. Well, one, I didn't want to go to the hospital or or go to the ICU, but I didn't want to get COVID. I didn't want to get um, um, gray matter brain degeneration and have an MRI that looks like somebody 20 years older than I am. And and uh, to uh, have cognitive decline. And I think that's the other piece that we're not talking enough about. That's another compelling reason to vaccinate. Yeah. So right now, the Biden administration is currently restricting travel from Southern African countries. I wonder what you think about this travel ban strategy, which, to be fair, is not only the Biden administration. There's a lot of governments in Europe that are doing the same thing. It seems a little bit strange to me to specifically single out Southern Africa, considering that, as you said, I think just maybe 10 minutes ago, we know that this virus has likely already spread 
all over the world. To Canada, it's almost certainly already here if it's in Canada. It's almost certainly all over Europe. What is the deal with this travel ban? And do you think it's a smart policy? I, I, I've never understood travel bans. As I say from the beginning, they haven't worked. You know, when we first in, implemented travel bans from China and this virus came in from Southern Europe to ignite our New York epidemic, they've not worked. Maybe some exceptions are some of the island nations, New Zealand, Australia, but overwhelmingly for North America, South America, and, and Europe, they've not worked. And um, this virus just spreads too quickly and already sneaks into countries very quickly. So I, I don't really understand the logic. I think part of it um, may be optics um, that, you know, that global leaders want to show that they're doing something and that they're looking out after their populations. I think ultimately it's self-defeating because it's counterproductive. It makes it harder to work with the affected countries and it's expensive and it's, it, it, drains resources from organizations to implement the travel bans when what we really should be doing is is uh, helping um, the affected countries where potentially Omicron originated and and help Botswana get vaccinated, help South Africa, help Mozambique and Malawi and Namibia and, and, and Tanzania. And, and that's far more productive use of our of our energies. So if travel bans are bad policy, what does good policy look like? Let's say you're Joe Biden, or even better, perhaps you have the ear of Joe Biden. He calls you tonight and says, Dr. Hotez, what should I do? What do you tell here's, Joe? Here's what needs to be done. We, you know, we now know that um, the alpha variant arose, arose out of an unvaccinated population in the UK in 2020. Delta arose out of an unvaccinated population in India in 2021. What did they think was going to happen when you left the entire African continent unvaccinated or 6% vaccinated, which basically rounds off to zero? What did you think was going to happen? So, of course, the next big worrisome pandemic threat variant arose out of Africa. This was both predicted and predictable. And this is, you know, I... Overall, I think the Biden administration has done a good job in terms of vaccine policy for the U.S., but we're just not seeing that ownership of doing something globally, right? I mean, you even heard it today. Um, you know, the president said, well, um, we've sent 275 million doses to 110 countries, more than any other country. I mean, that's true. But what he didn't say was, we've got a billion people in sub-Saharan Africa. We've got 600, 700 million people in Latin America. We have, you know, hundreds of millions of people in the Middle East and the smaller, low-income uh, Southeast Asian countries. We need to vaccinate 3 billion people, and not by 2023 now. That means we need 9 billion doses. Where's the 9 billion doses coming from? And... And that's what we need. And and the problem is there was never a plan to make 9 billion doses of anything. We certainly can't do it with mRNA, and at least at the beginning, with any brand new technology, as any engineer would tell you, you can't go to zero to 9 billion. So by design, we knew we were going to screw over the Southern Hemisphere. That was the plan. That was always the plan. We were going to leave the Southern Hemisphere unvaccinated. And and I said, no, I don't think we need to do that. So that's why we made our simple, you know, recombinant protein vaccine, same technology 
used to make the hepatitis B vaccine that's been around for 40 years that works really well, I think as maybe as good as mRNA vaccines, and is made locally in Brazil and in India and in Indonesia and Bangladesh and, and, and many other places. That's what we need to do. And, and nobody, nobody would buy into that. So we've been left on our own the whole time. I'm doing it now. We've now tech- transferred the technology to India first. Hopefully, it'll be releasing for emergency use authorization. But had we gotten a fraction of the support that Moderna got or, or Pfizer, I think we could have had the world vaccinated by now. And even now, there's still no plan to vaccinate the world. There's no, there's no ideas being really put forward of how we're going to make and deliver 9 billion uh, doses now. And and then, you know, we heard the president say, we need the other countries to step up. And so, but who's going to lead? I mean, we're not seeing that leadership, right? I mean, I, I mean, who's supposed to lead this? Putin? She? I mean, some nameless bureaucrat from the European, from the European Commission? I mean, no, it's got to be the president of the United States. And you might say, well, that's not fair to always make America do it. No, it's life in the big city. That's, that's, all it, that's always been for the last, hundred years that if the U.S. doesn't lead the big picture, it doesn't get done. And and the same is now. I want to ask you about vaccine hesitancy. Um, You and I have talked quite a bit about vaccine hesitancy and vaccine denial in the United States, but it's not a purely American phenomenon. It it is a global phenomenon. Um, Just a week ago, there was a headline in Bloomberg uh, that South Africa was asking Johnson Johnson Pfizer to stop sending vaccines to that country because they couldn't administer more as many doses as they were receiving. They were hitting the vaccine hesitancy or vaccine denial uh, ceiling after only inoculating about 35% of their adult population. So how do we combat not only the vaccine supply problem, which you just mentioned, but also the vaccine demand problem? This is not just a, a purely American phenomenon. It really does appear to be similarly global. Yeah, no, but, you know, it's an American-led initiative, unfortunately, the anti-vaccine movement. And it's got three moving pieces. And and again, there's not been the appetite to really take this on. Um, so what are the three moving pieces? Well, right now in the United States, the number one force, of course, is the aggression coming from the far right, right? And the statements from members of the U.S. Congress who've declared vaccines as political instruments of control or have said, first, we're going to, they're going to vaccinate you and then they're going to take away your guns and your Bibles. And as ridiculous as that sounds to us, we've got a quarter of the U.S. population that, that believes it. And so trying to find a way to yank the anti-science out of far-right extremism in the U.S. is, and unfortunately it started all in Texas, is, is I think been one of the real challenges. And so far, nobody's shown much appetite to take it on. But there are other things we can do. The other piece to this is what the Center for Countering Digital Hate, and it's amazing we have to have an organization called the Center for Countering Digital Hate, calls the disinformation dozen. These are a, a dozen non-governmental organizations that are responsible for a lot of the content. And and that includes, for instance, these fake documentary, the documentary they call it, that shows you know people of color getting their Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, and then it switches over to images of Tuskegee experimentation, and you know makes the statement that the African people are being experimented on, and 
And nobody has an appetite to deplatform. Those dif- disinformation does, and that has to be done. And then the third is the Putin government, um, who has had this sy- systematic program of what's being called weaponized health communication, which includes discrediting Western vaccines, in some, in some cases in favor of Sputnik V. So that's caused a lot of problems. And so th- the problem is it goes beyond the health sector to know how to dismantle the anti-vaccine empire. Um, and I've said both to the Biden administration and the UN agencies, you know, you can't leave it to the health sector. They don't know what to do, but there are people who do, the same people who fight global terrorism or nuclear proliferation or or cyber attacks. We need to bring them in to create an interagency task force in the U.S. government to see how we look at that from State Department, Homeland Security, and Commerce and Justice Department, because I don't know how to do it. Um, None of my colleagues in the health sector do either. And, you know, you've heard the Surgeon General talk about Facebook and the social media companies. Yeah, they're disseminating a lot of the stuff, but they're not, they didn't create the content. So going after the groups that create the content, I think, is something that we really need to look at seriously. Yeah. My last question is about the future of of vaccine innovation. I know that Moderna right now is working on a multivariant booster. Uh, BioNTech is also working on a uh, shot specifically for Omicron, but uh, is also looking at the possibility of developing a shot that could take on all of the variants and, and that, we're, that and coronavirus can throw at us. And we're doing that as well. So, what is the what's the timeline on on that on on your progress and on the on the progress you understand other uh, pharmaceutical companies are having with well, with I this think, sort of I think to make silver the, bullet. The, I think if it's necessary, and just say if it's necessary, it may not be to make the Omicron equivalent of what we've already made. I think that's. That's not a big, going to be a big deal. I think that's that's doable within months. To make a true universal coronavirus vaccine, where there are a lot of different suggested approaches, we're taking one to look for some consensus sequence and other approaches. I think that'll that'll be a a, a bit longer. I think the other thing to think about, you know, moving forward, so is you know trying to build capacity in low and middle income countries to make vaccines. And again, it should not be all on mRNA because there are limits to the technology. Um, and to uh, keep in play a variety of technologies, including ones that we use, like recombinant protein vaccines. I mean, if you remember at the beginning of this pandemic, many of us thought, you know, if you said I couldn't pick our vaccine as who was going to be the winner, I would have said the VSV technology that Merck and company did for the Ebola vaccine that was so successful and I think even stabilized the African continent. Um, uh, that looks really good. It was a single dose, um, but it tanked as a for COVID-19. If you said, well, what about mRNA or nucleic acid vaccines? I would said, well, those have been around for a couple of decades. They haven't really moved anywhere. The, the I think the lesson learned is for an, any new pathogen, you don't know till you know. So we're going to have to keep a lot of different technologies in play. Great. Dr. Hotez, thank you so, so much for, for talking us through this confusing moment. And um, I, will, uh, I will see you and speak to you soon. Thanks so much. Appreciate the opportunity. That's all we have for today. Plain English with Derek Thompson is produced by Devin Manzi. We will be back in your podcast feed on Friday this week. Talk to you soon. Uh-huh.